When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on Wealth Track, two highly rated international investors, Ariel's Rubel Bansali and Seafarer's Andrew Foster, discuss overseas opportunities to seize and risks to avoid. They are next on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. WealthTrack has been promoting the benefits of global investing since our launch in 2005. The reasons are pretty obvious. More than 95% of the world's population lives outside of the United States. 76% of the world's goods and services are produced in other countries. Yes, the U.S. economy is the largest contributor to global GDP, accounting for nearly 25% of the world's $74 trillion economy, but others are moving up. China accounts for about 15% of global GDP, having eclipsed Japan as the world's second largest economy several years ago. Japan's GDP footprint is now lagging at around 6%. As far as future drivers of world growth, the U.S. is still a major force, but others are growing faster. Estimates are that China will generate 35% of the world's real economic growth, that's excluding the effects of inflation, during the next three years. The U.S. is estimated to contribute about 18% of additional growth, followed by India's nearly 9%, the Eurozone's 8%, and surprisingly, Indonesia, the world's fourth most populous country, is predicted to be the fifth largest driver of real economic growth in the world, followed quickly by South Korea, Australia, Canada, the U.K., Japan, and Brazil. Again, these are estimates, but you get the point there is substantial additional economic power coming from other countries. Given these global realities, should U.S. investors with their well-known and understandable home bias increase their foreign exposure? And if so, when and where? This week's WealthTrack guests are both successful global investors with a specialty in international markets. Rupal Banzali is the chief investment officer of international and global equities for aerial investments. She is also portfolio manager of two top-rated funds, which she launched there in 2011. The five-star-rated Aerial International Fund is ranked in the top 10% of its Morningstar foreign large-value category, with its 9%-plus annualized returns. The four-star-rated Aerial Global Fund is in the top third of its world-large stock category, with 11% annualized returns. Andrew Foster is the founder, chief investment officer, and lead portfolio manager of Seafarer Capital Partners, which he started in 2011. In 2012, he launched his flagship Seafarer Overseas Growth and Income Fund, which is focused on foreign markets, especially in the developing world. It carries a Morningstar Silver Medalist ranking and a four-star rating for its performance and shareholder-friendly management. It is in the top 20th percent of its diversified emerging market category, with nearly 7% annualized returns over the five-year period. Before launching Seafarer, Foster spent several years as a portfolio manager and director of research at Asia Mutual Fund pioneer Matthews Asia. I began the conversation with the question, how compelling are the investment opportunities overseas? 
Well, uh, I would certainly say that they are far more attractive than the U.S. market because the U.S. market has gone up a lot, as we know, in the last couple of years. And frankly, it's roughly 2x the performance of international. So clearly, there is opportunity there. But I think with all markets having gone up, it's really become a stock picker's market. So you need to choose carefully. And Andrew, emerging markets is your specialty. So how compelling are the investment opportunities in emerging markets at this point? Well, I think they're moderately attractive. And and the reason why is we've come through a period of very low growth in the emerging markets in terms of corporate profitability. It has accelerated a lot in 2017, but there's been a bifurcation. There's a, a small number of countries and sectors growing very rapidly. The rest are just recovering more slowly. And I do fear that folks that are investing in the emerging markets right now are really trying to chase that rapid growth and very high valuation, which may not be sustainable. I think if you're focused on the other tier of the market, which is not experiencing as strong a recovery, but is still more fairly valued, I think there are opportunities in that segment. But that may not be what people are focused on right now. So I think there's a there's a bifurcation between what people perceive and what the reality is. Both of you are stock pickers, so I'll just say that right from the get-go. But looking at the emerging markets opportunity set versus the developed markets opportunity set internationally, what's your view? Well, um, I concur with Andrew. It's a two-speed market. He call it bifurcation. I call it two-speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are certainly finding more opportunity around the world emerging or developed in the companies with more steady growth as the ones with more heavy growth. So that's true of both emerging markets and international developed markets. Now, between the two, I think there's better opportunity in the international developed markets and Europe in particular. Uh, I think we know that Europe has been struggling for many, many years. Um, and, and I think it's just on the cusp of its sort of uh, recovery, uh, I think both from an economic standpoint, but also from a political standpoint. You each have investment themes. And let me just start with Andrew, because one of your overarching investment things right now is that you think the emerging markets have actually decoupled or are decoupling from developing markets, from developed markets, and in particular from the United States? Uh, I think the term decoupling is a loaded one, and it was in vogue 10 years ago. It was. It really, I thought it had very little bearing then because the emerging markets were growing because they had coupled with the West in terms of capital flows and trade. But those couplings are weakening now, in my view, uh, 10 years later. And I think really there's a great deal more independence in the emerging markets in terms of setting uh, divergent interest rate policies. Uh, emerging market central banks are cutting. The currencies are much more independent from the U.S. dollar than they once were. And lastly, the profit cycle is not as driven by the U.S. profit cycle as it once was, or at least that's what our data suggests. So I, I wouldn't want to paint a, a strong case that decoupling or uh, is, is, is here to stay, but I think the asset class is behaving differently and feeding less off of the developed world. So that might have a diversification benefit for investors that wasn't really present from the asset class previously. And Rupal, the, the developed markets internationally, are they still very much coupled with the U.S. with what happens in the U.S., or are, are they kind of leading a, a, an independent economic and financial life of their own more now? So I would say um, the U.S. is an all-important market, right. and the U.S. dollar is an all-important currency, so it's hard to decouple completely from anything like that. Uh, it exerts a gravitational pull no matter what. Uh, but that said, you are correct. I think Europe is sort of uh, operating at a different clock speed. And I think that because it operates at a different clock speed, i.e. it is slower, things tend to play out in slower motion in the international markets. And that means if you've missed out on some opportunities or trends in the U.S., you can actually take advantage of owning those 
in international developed markets just with a time lag. And we have a couple of ideas in our portfolio like that. Johnson & Johnson comes to mind in the US market in my global international global fund. I bought it about six years ago uh, and it's performed extremely well because at that time, Johnson & Johnson had three divisions, all of which were underperforming and under earning. And that was a very great setup, you know, in terms of upward re-rating and potential. Mm -hmm. uh, now that's played out. And that's great. You know, we've taken profits and, and, you know, this is still a very good investment opportunity that we experienced. In the international markets, you have a very similar uh, story in GlaxoSmithKline. Three different divisions. All of them are underperforming. They're all out of favor. A very similar playbook. And yet, you know, that return profile is yet to materialize. So when you have the opportunity to go abroad, you can own a Glaxo in your portfolio. Whereas if you restrict yourself to the U.S., perhaps the best days of some of these stocks are behind them. So uh, one of the, when you mentioned that you actually would buy a company where three of their major divisions are underperforming, that is considered to be kind of a contrarian point of view. You are a value investor. You think of yourself as being an unconventional thinker. So t tell me what, what are some of your, you think the major unconventional themes uh, that, that you are operating under right now? So I think, um, for example, many value investors uh, you know, traditionally have tried to own consumer staples and sort of very safe quality businesses of that sort. But the problem is, uh, and of course, Warren Buffett taught us, you know, that franchise and moat companies should be owned, right. uh, which is an excellent idea, except that it's overvalued. So you have to find different ways to find value in the markets. And right. you have it's to overvalued do it now because now. a lot of investors everybody have been is piled on and of... it's a crowded trade. Right. And frankly, when everybody's looking somewhere, you have to look somewhere else. You know, that's how investing really creates opportunities mm -hmm. for you. Uh, and I would say that instead of consumer staples, if you look at the telecommunications industry, uh, you know, today I would argue you can't do without smartphones. You can do without shampoo, but not without your smartphone. You lose your job, there's a recession. I think you'll have two smartphones, not one. So, and you'll pay your monthly bills uh, because, and this is, it's interesting, the telecommunications industry is not viewed as a staple industry, and I think that it should be, but it trades at almost a 50% discount to the staple stocks. Uh, and this is an industry uh, that I think has very high visibility in terms of secular uh, recurring revenue streams, uh, and yet very undervalued with high dividend yields. So you always, as a value investor, as someone who's an unconventional thinker, few people think of telecoms as a new staple. Right. But that's kind of why I wanted to bring this to bear, that that's how you have to think as an investor. How do I create value for my clients? If you do it in the conventional ways, if you look in the conventional places, you're not going to find it. It's very crowded. So you have to look elsewhere. You know, it's so interesting that Rupal mentioned dividends because in your overseas growth and income fund, obviously, income is important. And an unconventional thought to me would be, I'm looking at emerging markets for mm. income, but in fact, uh, that's the case. And so what are the opportunities that you're seeing in the emerging markets as far as, you know, as, as far as an income stream is? Well, I think one, one shocking thing is that there are quite a few dividends paid by emerging market companies. In fact, it's quite a bit, uh, there are varying standards of corporate governance throughout the emerging markets, but it's quite traditional that a lot of these companies do pay fairly reliable dividends. For me, the dividend is important as an acid test of the company's liquidity. It means that the company can share some of its earnings with me. And I think that's important in the emerging markets because people focus on the growth, and there is growth opportunity, but they tend to chase fast-growing companies, some of which are great, but many of which don't, aren't really built for survivorship. And another definitional component of the emerging markets is frequent crisis and shock. And so companies that aren't built to withstand those shocks 
are less likely to survive them and realize the growth that you might have forecast for them or expected. And so as a consequence, I really like dividend payers that have steady growth prospects and can pay me dividends because it demonstrates to me that they'll survive, or they're at least more likely to survive those crises should they erupt. And they do erupt much more frequently than the developed world. So as the emerging markets emerge, I mean, we've had guests come on and saying, you know, really that's a misnomer and that there are some of the emerging market countries have emerged. There there is a huge spectrum of the state of economic development in these countries that are classified as emerging markets. Uh, So there are some that are very wired, very plugged into the internet, great engineering capabilities and education and high levels of income per capita. And then then there's the other end of the spectrum as well. And varying growth rates uh, at the macroeconomic level. But what is actually definitional to me that they all share is poorly developed financial systems. And that means they're more prone to financial shocks. And that leads to the condition I was just mentioning. With there are more disruptions in the financial markets, there's more volatility in the stock market, and companies can't always get the capital they need to survive and grow through those periods. Some go out of business, some have their growth ambitions stunted. So I would say that's what's definitional, even when you're talking about, say, South Korea at one end of the development Mm -hmm. structure, spectrum, Vietnam at the other, even though they're very different, they still share this common feature, poorly developed financial markets. And, and Rupal, one of the things that you and I had talked about in a pre-interview was the fact that you think there, there are some misconceptions about American companies, you know, talking about cash flow and dividends and that there is a, uh, a perception out there that, that U.S. companies are very strong financially, um, that they're cash rich that they're extremely profitable, they came through the financial crisis and they cleaned up their acts and everything else. You're saying not so fast, explain. Well, uh, two things. One is I think people, um, out of sight is out of mind. So in the US, a lot of the financial problems are with Freddie and Fannie. They delisted from the stock markets. So people think our financial troubles are behind us, but they are not, they're just sitting out of sight. So the listed banking sector is capitalized, but not Freddie and Fannie. And we forget they are the biggest owners of the mortgages, you know, which went under in this country. Uh, so I think so that's the misnomer. Forget. We shouldn't forget. Now, when I talk about uh, the cash-rich attributes of uh, global companies in general, but you asked about the U.S., it is a misnomer because in the case of America, there's a slew of companies who are in the top tier. I would say the top 10 companies out of the thousands that exist in the market that are really the net cash-rich companies. Most of the other companies, for instance, um, Apple, Microsoft, you know, exactly, all the very big companies, Google, et cetera. Um, What people forget when they talk about cash rich, they forget a lot of these companies are very same companies, including Apple and Microsoft, by the way, even though they have a lot of high gross cash balances, which are often quoted, they have debt against it. Mm. So we always look at net cash. And actually the net cash balances, even for the best cash companies, are quite low. And, And secondarily, for the vast majority of companies, they are highly indebted. And that's not just true of America, it's true of a lot of companies worldwide, including emerging markets. Mm-hmm. From an investment point of view then, to tell, tell us how, how you are investing to, to avoid uh, these heavily indebted companies and, uh, and, uh, and take advantage of the companies that, that have really solid balance sheets. Again, as an unconventional thinker, it's not just about you know, having high cash in my portfolio. Uh, That's one way to go. And we have higher cash levels than we normally do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think also owning net cash companies gets you there. But the other way to think about this equation is a lot of people like to own companies with pricing power. 
You know, that's always been the traditional definition of a franchise. Does it have pricing power? In a deflationary world, nobody has pricing power. And so, in fact, what you want to look for in your companies is, do they have the ability to improve productivity, do more with less? This is why we consume so much technology and which is why tech companies are doing so well. Mm -hmm. They always give us less for more for less, mm -hmm. right? That's our expectation. Generally, technological prices are deflationary in nature. That is the one industry that knows how to deal with deflation. The energy industry, oil industry, is going through that now, how to deal with deflation. The commodity industry at large is going through deflation. Commodity prices are down. All of these companies, the ones who are going to be the winners, are not the ones who wait for those oil prices to go up or those commodity prices to go up. But how do they improve their cost structure? Shale fracking in the U.S. improve their cost structure. That's why they are on the upswing. Mm -hmm. So I think the equation in this deflationary world is look for companies who can improve productivity, do more with less, not necessarily those that have pricing power. And with survivorship, what are right. the key characteristics? In for me, uh, Survivorship is many things, but it really, if I had to boil it down to a couple key characteristics, I look for high profit margins, and I use a, a margin called the EBIT margin, which is earnings before interest and taxes. It's somewhat similar to an operating margin, because, and it also tends to be similar to cash flow uh, in the company to equity holders. It's a little bit different from that, but it's a, it's a good, good uh, measure to key off of. I look for high margin companies because I think that allows them to withstand lots of different types of shocks. I do as much as I can to look for steady growth rates, not necessarily very rapid growth rates that might flame out in a few years' time. I look for uh, companies that have gone through stresses in the past and have been resilient and grown steadily through those stresses. So one of our bigger holdings right now that exemplifies this, it's not very much in favor right now, is a company called Infosys. Mm -hmm. uh, Infosys has extremely high margins. People have been predicting the margins would fall for many years now, and they haven't. And meanwhile, people have been predicting the company would uh, slow egregiously, and it hasn't. Uh, it's not very much in favor because of some um, changes going on at the company right now in terms of its ownership structure, its governance structure. But I'm, I'm quite convinced that despite the challenges that this company fa will f has faced, it can continue to overcome those challenges as it's done so many times in the past. And also, I might add, in the, in the Overseas Growth and Income Fund, you, you have a portfolio of 40 to 60 stocks, mostly around 40 you know the companies well. Right. I, I see my mission as trying to find 40 to 60 great issuers in the emerging markets that, are, that offer this survivability and sustained growth characteristic. And I will tip, I key off of the equities. But occasionally, I will choose an instrument that is other than the equity that I think might afford my portfolio risk-adjusted preference. So a good example is preferred shares. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they offer this similar economic characteristics to the common stock, but a much improved dividend yield and a cheaper valuation. Uh, so uh, in, in, in some instances like that, I might buy the preferred stock over the common stock or even a convertible bond for sim similar reasons. And what's your mission, Drupal, for the international <clears throat> fund and the global fund? How would you describe it? And, and give us a couple of examples of companies that exemplify that. Well, my mission is to deliver the highest rate of return for the lowest unit of risk that risk. I can t mm -hmm. uh, expose to. In terms of their business model, I'm looking for how do they improve productivity. So Microsoft is one of my largest holdings in the global strategy. Now, you know why? We can't do without Excel and Microsoft Word and PowerPoint. And they've got a lot of growth ahead of them because of their Azure platform, which is a cloud platform. And Amazon Web Services has to, you know, been the early entrant there. Uh, but Azure is fast moving in and it's actually growing at 
100% growth rates. Now, for a company inside of this large company right. like Microsoft, you know, this mega cap company, to have a business with that kind of growth potential is just fantastic. Microsoft is what I call an enterprise staple, not a consumer staple, but now you understand it's give me the value that I'm looking for the returns with low risk. Another good example of that would be the healthcare industry. I think people conflate all healthcare companies as if, uh, you know, they all charge high prices and rip you off mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. What people fail to really appreciate is that the drug costs are 2% of the cost of the entire treatment. Uh, it's hospitalization and the system costs that are the biggest. So if you can actually take a drug that can you know, give you progression-free survival or improve your health, uh, as opposed to having to end up in hospital or in emergency care or acute care, that's actually enormous productivity in terms of the savings in the system. Gilead, Roche, uh, Glaxo, mm -hmm. I mean, these are all fine companies of healthcare, you know, uh, and they support high dividend yields, which is great. So you get the growth, you get the dividend, and you don't have to pay up for them. Uh, it's time for the one investment. So w what would your one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio be, Andrew? So I think the most important thing uh, that I think the average uh, American investor needs to contemplate right now is the proportion of their portfolio that is tied to dollar-based uh, assets and dollar-based income streams. I would advocate uh, a rethinking and a rebalancing at this stage. I away think, from Away from, I think we've all been drawn into the, to the performance of this market and all the different asset classes here, real estate, fixed income uh, equities. And I think it's time that folks look beyond this. So I would advocate an, a strong international fund. I think if you're looking uh, for an active fund, I think Rupal has done a phenomenal job constructing your portfolio. I've, 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 I've enjoyed watching what she's done with her strategy. I think some folks aren't sold on active management. So if they're not, I, I was going to recommend a, another fund called DFWIX, DFA Worldwide XUS. Um, it's an, a remarkable fund because it is able to capture 8,000 stocks uh, for about 39 basis points. And what I, 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 whether you go active or passive, I just would I'd say even more important that, than that right now is broadening your scope beyond the dollar sphere of influence right now because it's, it's critical that investors uh, have that diversification in their portfolio and not get tied up too much in one market. Which is why we wanted to talk to each of you to make that point exactly. Rupa, what would your one investment be for a long-term diversified portfolio? Well, um, I would strongly call out active as a strategy. Uh, I think that this phenomenon where the bulk of the flows are going passive means that people are simply taking risks that they don't realize they are taking. Everybody focuses on the low cost of passive. They don't realize what are the high risks of passive. Cost and risk are two different things. And the risks of passive can be valuation risk. If the market is rich, you are buying into valuation risk. You just don't call it that. Uh, passive has got so much illiquidity risk because it's supposed to own everything. And if there is no taker on the other side when they want to go to sell, on the way out, uh, you'll be exposed to it. Uh, these things can cost you hundreds to thousand plus basis points of performance. My single biggest recommendation for people to consider in their portfolios it's the unsung asset class of the day, mm -hmm. cash. Cash is not even cash. viewed as an asset class, which is a strange, strange phenomenon. People think that debt is an asset class, high yield is an asset class, equities, emerging markets, you know, whatever you want to call it, but they are all risk asset classes. And in a risk on market, risky assets do well. But what if we have a reversal? 
if the pendulum swings, and it always does, yes. cash is the only uncorrelated asset class. And we saw what happened in 2008. In a bear market, correlations are the only thing that go up. Cash is your only uncorrelated asset. So I think people need to rethink the role of cash in their portfolios. Well said. Thank you both so Thank much you. for being with us. Rupa Bansali from Aerial Investments and Andrew Foster as well from Seafair Capital. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's Action Point focuses on survivorship, not the company kind that Andrew Foster was talking about, which definitely has its merits. This one is about having your purchasing power survive even low inflation. This week's Action Point is own some inflation fighters in your portfolio. I got the idea from an article in Kiplinger's Personal Finance magazine, which pointed out that even 2% annual inflation will take away a third of your purchasing power over 20 years. That is a wealth destroyer in retirement. Many WealthTrack guests have recommended owning tips over the years, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, where the principal adjusts with inflation. Kiplinger worries that as interest rates rise, the value of tips bonds will decline, so it suggests a less interest rate-sensitive alternative, the Vanguard Short-Term Inflation Protected Securities ETF, symbol VTIP. It is one of the cheapest funds in the category and focuses on tips maturing in less than five years. Thank you, Kiplingers, for my action point. Next week, our guest is Matt Perron, head of global equities at Northern Trust and an expert in the hot area of factor investing. He says a lot of people are doing it incorrectly. He'll set the record straight. In the meantime, please visit our website, wealthtrack.com, to see this program and others and hear our exclusive interviews with this week's guests. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.